Max Keller, what's going on, man? Hey, good. How you doing? I'm excellent, man. It's a beautiful day here in Chicago. Now, remind me, man, remind the audience, where, where are you located out of? Yeah, Dallas-Fort Worth, uh, so Texas. Definitely um, uh, warm today, too, and uh, yeah. uh, beautiful weather. Mm-hmm. Nice. I was actually just in Dallas, like literally this weekend for a men's retreat. I think we were at like Palo, Palo Pinto or something like that, but yeah, uh, I saw some snakes, and it was freaking awesome. Uh, <laughs> but it's, a, it's, it's great weather. Yeah. yeah. So, so remind us, man, I, you know, you, you've done, I know some things about you. I know you're in flipping, you've done very well. You've done over 120 flips. Um, but this is the first deal experience to, of course, you know, for you and the people listening in, this is where a podcast where people just share, right? Successful real estate investors. I mean, we've had all sorts of people from people who only have done two or three deals to literally friends of mine who have nine figures worth of real estate under their control. And it's just simply them sharing the first story of how they did their first transaction and kind of what would the lead up to it. So sure. for you, my man, why don't you tell a little bit about yourself? Give us kind of just your bio, your, your, I guess your highlights, your resume, and then we can kind of just get into the story of your first deal. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. So, um, you know, I started out uh, before real estate as a math teacher and I actually started on that journey about five years ago. So it wasn't that long ago. I had no intention of becoming a full-time real estate investor. You know, you just never know what, you know, God or the spirit has planned for you. I actually got into it because a friend of mine had a big family. He started buying rentals and he said, we were on vacation together. He said, Max, I bought a rent house. And I was like, what? Like he didn't, you know, I've been his best friend a long time. He's pretty conservative, like financially, not real risk taker, works for the government. And he's like, you know, my pay is just locked in and my family's growing and I have to do something. And so I just bought a rent house and my goal is just to buy a rent house a year. And I was sort of kind of uh, reaching that same thing. I was seven years into teaching. I wanted to do something in the summertime. I was trying to get some businesses going. I was trying to partner with other people. And it seemed like when I wanted to get a side hustle going, you know, they didn't really, they wanted to do it until there was work involved. And so it was right at that moment. And I just started researching um, real estate. I had no intention of leaving my job. I love being a high school math teacher at an inner city school. Um, It's just a lot of fun, a lot of fulfillment. And so I just went on this quest to learn how to buy one rental a year. And it turned into, um, so I did what normal people do, I think. You know, I I educated myself. I listened to podcasts like yours. And I I found some local, uh, you know, folks that could, you know, help me, went to the RIA clubs. And my first deal I did about six months or so after I officially got started or got the idea. And it was really pretty simple. I put an ad in Craigslist, um, motivated seller called me, you know, all the, when you, when you get your first call from a motivated seller, it's, um, it's just, I don't know. It's like everything else sort of like was blocked out. And I had heard that, that when you reach a motivated seller, you really can't screw it up when they're truly motivated. When you're trying to talk people into stuff, that's not real motivation. And that's exactly what happened. This gentleman called, he needed help with his um, dad's house. And we, I went out there and took a look at the home. It needed a ton of work. I put an offer in, we got the house under contract for, I think it was about, I think it was about 58,000. We ran a kind of an investor inspection. So not the whole thing, but it was my first deal. So I didn't want to, you know, mess up too bad. Um, fortunately I did because they found some major like structural stuff that I couldn't catch. And, uh, we, we got the price reduced and then I, um, took it under, I took it down because it was pretty inexpensive. I think at that point, the takedown was like 48,000. It needed a lot of work. You know, this is an area where 
now the median home value is about 250, but it used to be more like, you know, 150. And then I, I, I found that when you have a really good deal and you learn how to get a really good deal, um, you know, the disposition, the sales side is, is much simpler. And so I had a really good deal and I made a, I got a list of uh, people who had bought cash properties in that zip code uh, from list source and literally printed out, I think like 300 and something of them and mailed them out. My kids helped me mail them all out. And, um, you know, I mean, I'm just Max, the math teacher, you know, and, and I'm, this is my first deal and I'm just, I just bought a property and I hope I can sell it, you know, and I, and you're, I just couldn't wait until I had everything figured out. I had to yeah. just figure out as much as I could. And so to make a long story short, I had a bunch of people actually respond to the yellow letter um, and they reached out to me. And one of the things that I did that worked really, really well, that served me well was just keeping my word. Um, I had somebody who gave me a verbal over the phone at like 68. So I think I took it down at, I think I was all in like 52 because I made like 16 on the first deal. And I had an approval at 68. The guy wanted, the cash buyer wanted to go lower. And I just said, look, I'm a math teacher. I didn't say that, but I said, you know, like, I know how much these are worth. This is a good deal. I already know I could sell it for more. If you want it at this price, you know, I'm going to try to sell it this price through the weekend. And then if not, I'll call you. I was, I was trying to be respectful, but I knew yeah. that I had the leverage, but I didn't, I didn't feel like I needed to squeeze every ounce of juice out of, out of the deal. Um, because, you know, cash buyer relationships are reciprocal and, you know, they, not everybody just buys one property. And I wanted to do this for the long haul. I had started a business in 08, a recruiting business, and I didn't know what I was doing and I wasn't educating myself. Like, you know, I was at, you know, at, at this point in time and, and the business didn't do well. And I thought I'd never get another chance to do this. So I, I really, I made a list of all the things that went wrong in 08 and I was trying to do everything I can to fix that. And so the guy did a verbal commitment, somebody else offered more. And I said, you know, I already have somebody. And that was the smartest move I made because when I sold the house to that gentleman, he became one of my best cash buyers. I sold him multiple properties. Mm. And then, um, I, then you know how it goes. It always starts with one. That's the hardest one. You know, the next hardest one is number two. And then after that, it was pretty much about the same. I think I was on deal number three when I quit my job. I could tell that I, um, wow. this was just what I wanted to do. And my real estate business was getting in the way of teaching. And um, so I just, I quit, you know, never looked back. So let's, let's backtrack, man. Cause you just, you just said a mouthful, right? I mean, there's, there's a lot that you just sat there and unwinded. You said your buddy, right? Your best friend got into rentals. He got a rental property. Now, a lot of times when we hear our friends do stuff like that, we're just like, oh, okay, great, whatever. But what were the, kind of like the two or three things, right? Like what, what, are the, what are the things that made you go, I want to do this, right? And that's what pushed you to go watch those podcasts and, you know, watch those videos and read those books. What, what were those things? Uh, the signs kept appearing. So when we were in Destin, Florida, we had say, I mean, this is teacher salary. My wife worked at our church, you know, not big money, you know, not, not like, you know, we're doing so much different now. Our life is so much different, but it wasn't like that. And so that was like the first thing. Um, one thing I didn't mention is this wasn't the first time actually that I tried to do real estate investing. So I had tried to do real estate investing back in 05. You know, I had recently graduated college. I had a new family. I got an LLC. I got a map of the city and I was going to pick my area and I just didn't really understand how to get the education. I didn't understand how to take advantage of the resources that were available. And so it just sort of didn't go anywhere. So 
So me doing real estate probably wasn't a huge stretch. You know, even when I was younger and I would ride my bike around the neighborhood or yeah. I would you know, drive around, I'd pull flyers, you know, back when they had flyers on the properties and we go on vacation, I'd look up the properties. So I guess I always saw people who had properties as successful and I wanted to be successful. So I always, and I thought living in a house, a really like nice house would be really cool. So I've always kind of like, it's always been knocking on the door when we left that vacation and my friend told me that he bought a rent house. Then we stayed with my cousin who's in the Coast Guard down in Louisiana. And he told us how he's got this really cool landlord. I go, are you buying or renting? He said, well, I'm just renting. Because, mm -hmm. but man, my landlord's so cool. He's like our age, you know, I'm in my thirties at the time. And he's like, you know, he's our age. And our, my landlord has like seven or eight properties and he doesn't work. All he does is just like, just drive around and make sure that we're happy and that we pay the rent. And I was like, what? That sounds pretty good. And so it was sort of like that. And I think what's, you know, was instructional there is just like, when you see the signs over and over, you know, go for it, take the next step. And yeah. so that's what I did. So it sounds like, you know, you heard that story. You really, it was appealing to you, right? The life of a landlord, the fact that this guy was just driving around making sure. And it sounds like, you know, it sounds like your cousin, your friend, I mean, he was enjoying being his renter. You know, yep. he, he enjoyed having this guy as his landlord. There was no problems. There was no beef. But I understand that you're primarily a flipper, right? And it sounds like your first couple of transactions, you, were, you wholesaled them. You know, what, what made you then go from, wow, this landlording thing is really cool. I want to have a rental portfolio to let's start wholesaling or flipping. Is it because you wanted to increase your capital? Was it more appealing? You know, what, what, what were the reasons? Maybe it's all of them. Yes. Yeah, so originally, I just wanted to get, you know, one rental, maybe two rentals a year, you know, do that for 10 years. I'd retire as a teacher, do find something else to do. And then, um, and then I'd have these rentals and maybe some of them would be paid off. Then when I started looking at the market, the retail demand in our area, Dallas, Fort Worth, you know, there's a lot of people moving to Texas uh, from other markets. So the retail demand was really strong. And I noticed that, you know, folks were, there was great opportunity to increase my active income. And I felt like the fastest way that I could get more rentals was to first increase my active income, then start building my passive assets. And then I'd be in a position to where I could start thinking about, you know, legacy and tax savings and things like that. So that's, that's the route that I went. I saw what other people in the market were doing to make active income. I started learning about how much they were making. And I felt like, you know, I just had the attitude if they can do it, you know, I can, it, it was just lack of knowledge. And if I got the knowledge and I put the time in, then I would. And, um, and so that's, pretty much what I did from 2015 to 2017 is I just gobbled up properties, learned all the different techniques. Uh, the problem was, is that, and, and I was collecting rentals, you know, you kind of save the best ones. Um, and so that was working really well. What, what I noticed in my market was, is around 2017, you know, the return on my marketing spend started going down at that point. You know, I was doing a lot of, a lot of direct mail. I mean, I was doing everything. I was doing, you know, websites and bandit signs and, I had people in the Philippines cold calling and it's, but it's a progression. You know, you get your first, you get your first deal, then your second, then I got my third. Then I remember the first time I had two deals going at a time. Then I remember the time that I had three, then I had two crews, you know, and so it's not like it happens, you know, automatically. One of the things that helped me was um, I plugged into mastermind groups and, you know, plugged into education. And I, even though I was tired at the end of the day, I kept learning. And so that shortened the learning curve a lot. And I was, I was already working really hard as a coach and a teacher. And so yeah. for me, it wasn't working any harder. And then 
but I've made pivots. The first pivot was in 2015 to get involved in it. And then the second pivot, which, you know, if we have time, I'll, we'll chat about, I had to make in 2017 when, you know, the return on marketing was getting lower and it was getting more competitive. Yeah. So, you know, you talked about podcasts and you invested in some education. Now you don't have to say the name of the company, but did you pay at all for education? Did you pay for any courses? Um, yes, I paid for some coaching at the beginning. So at first I just listened to and read as much as I could. Yeah. That's actually when I found out I was dyslexic. I didn't actually know that. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I struggled to read. And I always knew that any classes that involved a lot of reading, I really struggled on. And then, um, but I knew that my friends in the mastermind, they were reading a lot. I was noticing mm -hmm. this trend. And so I got diagnosed, I got with a coach and uh, she helped me read a lot better. And now I'm writing books. I mean, I never would have imagined that. Nice. So, um, but so I did a lot of reading at the beginning, a slow process to needless to say, I listened to um, different podcasts and then my, and then I found a local mentor. I found somebody on a podcast that said, you know, you're going to get your education one of a couple ways. Um, you know, you're going to pay for it with your, you know, your time and which you can't replace, or, you know, you can pay somebody to accelerate. And so I kind of did both. First, I found somebody local and I worked for him for free. And it was uh, very challenging because I would work all day as a math teacher. And then I would work in evenings and weekends doing that. And I was basically, he would take new properties on at auction. I would go with them and learn how to buy at auction, you know, help, you know, with the communication. And then one of the first things I learned was how to get good contractors. So I was in charge of getting his, um, you know, finding contractors, getting bids uh, for the properties, things, getting his, his rental properties rehab. So I was learning yeah, yeah. from a local person. I was feeding him some deals too. So it was, it was a really, it was a win-win. And, um, and then I paid um, a gentleman to be my coach and he helped me set up my marketing plan and really showed me that I couldn't work under this mentor forever. I had to go out on my own and it was really scary. Um, and I'm, I'm okay with taking a little bit of risk. And it was scary for me. He's like, you know, you can't just be under this person's wing. You have to stand out and be your own man. Yeah. And I was like, crap. Um, I hope that I was hoping that wasn't going to happen. And, uh, but I mean, obviously we want that. It was just, I mean, I was scared. Um, and I just went out there and went for it. And then um, some of my other friends who were like a year or two ahead of me in the, in the real estate world, they, um, they took me under their wing and we're still friends today. So it was, you know, being in a city, it was good to have a network. I had mentors and I had coaches. So kind of all of them. Yeah. Right on, man. So I know yeah. your, your first couple of deals, you know, you did, you wholesaled them and you kind of described the process of what you did and, and how you sold it and whatnot. So tell me about, tell me about your first flip. You know, what was that like? What was that transition like? What did you do? And this is, this is what I really want to know. And for our listeners, what, what did you do to prepare for that? Like, when did you go, man, I'm ready to do this? I don't know if I ever said it. Um, I just thought that I was, um, once I, once I had the contractors, because I knew how to get the money, um, I had decent credit so I could get some community loans. They were still doing some fix and flip loans. So I think it's, I think in, for me, it was like, okay, what are all the different buckets? So like finding deals, check, you know, exit strategies. I'd been in the mastermind for a couple months at that point. So I knew some different exit strategies. Um, I actually did a seller finance deal, my second deal, because somebody nice. in my group had done them and it was an area that didn't have the retail demand, but it did for the seller finance. I wasn't afraid to try stuff. I think the biggest thing that helped me by far feel safer at the beginning was because not like you have to be a math teacher, but I was, if I was good at anything, 
and I don't really like saying I'm good at this, I'm good at that. But if I was good at anything, it was buying with a discount. And so I just would not buy the house if it wasn't deep. And, you know, in 2015, the deals were deeper than they are now. But I mean, I'm buying these at, you know, when you're buying it true, you know, 60 cents on the dollar all in, 65 cents on the dollar, single family home. I'm not going to say it's hard to, to mess up, but by then I already had some people around me that I could call and get that help. If I didn't have that, that would have been really tough. And then the contractors. At the beginning, when I was working under the mentor, I wasn't really learning how to find deals. I was learning how to get them rehab successfully. And I found very quickly that if you have, there's a big difference between the HVAC contractor that's retail and the one that's investor friendly. And, you know, the one that is doing it the right way. And then the one who rips you off. And I mean, I've still gotten ripped off. I mean, it happens, but I just, I, I had my first crew on my second deal. I had to go through about three crews. So I didn't make a lot of money on my second deal, but by the third deal, I had my crew and I knew that I knew about the property, right? I knew that um, I had a good crew. I knew how to rehab it because of all of those years driving around and looking at properties and that being really fun. Not the HGTV thing. I'm not really into design or anything like that. I just wear my home buyer t you know, t-shirt every day. Like I'm not really into all that, but just from the utility standpoint, I think it, it that's just yeah. logical. So that's, that's pretty much it. I just, my third flip, I went for it and, um, and we scored big and, it's kind of a funny story because it was September 20th, uh, 2016 was my third deal, my first true retail flip. And the 20th of the month is when we get paid as teachers. We get paid once a month on the 20th and I've been getting paid every month. I wasn't complaining about it, but it's really small compared to what I'm making now and yeah. what probably a lot of people are making. I think it was about 3,200 after all expenses taken out and I was, uh, raising a big family on it with my wife working at the church. That was the first month that I wasn't getting the teacher pay. And that month on the 20th at the title company, instead of $3,200, um, it was 32,000 was what I netted on the, on the HUD one. So I, I literally 10 X. And <laughs> once that happened, I was like, it was almost exactly to the penny. Yeah. So yeah. once that happened, I just felt like whatever challenges came in front of me, I could conquer. Just out of curiosity, because, you know, my whole family, actually, we used to work at a church. What, uh, what did your wife do? She uh, taught choir. So when I met oh, her. Very good. Yeah, so she's a choir yeah. teacher. And uh, she, she did that in the public schools. And then when she stayed home with our kids, she just kept teaching choir at, um, at our church. Yeah, I used to be a worship leader at a church. So. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool, man. So let's say in like 30 seconds or less, because yeah. uh, I think this is something that a lot of people struggle with. You know, how do you find good contractors? How do you find the right crew? What, what would you say to that? Because it sounds like you've got some experience with, with those things. Yeah, so one of them was um, we developed an application. And what we found was is that the number one predictor of a contractor being good for us was um, when we, we made them set up an appointment to talk about the job with us. You know, we were using, I remember time trade at the time, but now we're using Calendly. But if the contractor um, set an appointment to talk to us and they showed up to it on time, that was m more of a predictor of the success than anything else. It was really about like, most of the contractors knew how to work on houses. The ones that struggled didn't understand the business part, staying organized. So that was a way that we predicted how organized and on time they were. And that solved 98% of the problems. 
Yeah. I mean, just professionalism, right? So, you know, it, I think this is a question that a lot of viewers who are listening to this right now would probably ask you is, you know, how do you find your best deals? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's changed a lot. So that's sort of the pivot. So in 2017, I went from, I, I was doing well, um, but I, obviously I left teaching to do more than just, you know, well, you know, I knew I, I needed a lot of leads to keep my, my deal flow up. And, and those were pretty much the lifeblood of my business. And so at the time I was using everything. I was using the, the you know, websites. I was using, you know, yellow letters, every list I could get my hands on. And every, every month, literally my return, my response rate, my conversion rate was just getting lower and lower. And so I was having to put out, sometimes I would put out three or four grand for marketing and not get any deals back. And I was like, okay, I got to do something about it. So what I did was, is I just like thought about it. The problem was actually pretty simple. Um, it's the solution that's more difficult. So the problem was I was going after the exact same leads um, and saying the exact same messages as all the other wholesalers and all the other investors. And so I needed to do something different. So what I did was I made a list of all the deals that I had done up to that point. And I was looking for three things because really the business was becoming a grind. And I actually was contemplating leaving and just going back to teaching. I liked making the money. I was like, you know, I can go back to teaching and just get the rentals. I, you know, I left teaching to get a, you know, a lot more, spend more time with my family, have more freedom. And I actually had less freedom than I ever, you know, had before. So what I did was I made a list of all the deals that I'd done up to that point. And I was looking for three things. I wanted deals that uh, were profitable, where the seller assents to my offer. And, you know, I had fun. I didn't want to, I had fun being a teacher. I wanted to have fun making money doing this too. And so there's kind of good news and bad news. Which one do you want first? <laughs> Let's get both. All right. So the bad news is, is that most of my deals up to that point did not meet all three. Okay. The good news was, is that the ones that did, they followed a, a very, very distinct pattern. They were senior homeowners. So they weren't just motivated homeowners. They were senior homeowners. And so I was like, huh, okay. I, I could kind of figure out why this makes sense. You know, how do I get more of them? What list are they on? How are they finding out about me? And what I found was, is that senior homeowners didn't meet, and that's my best niche right now. They didn't meet the uh, typical motivated seller buy box. They weren't in pre-foreclosure. A lot of them don't even have a mortgage. You know, they weren't, this wasn't from the vacant house list. This wasn't from the inherited list. It wasn't from all these lists. They, they um, you know, the house was in good shape. They're, they weren't a, a worn out landlord. So I'm like, huh, okay, this is how I've been getting deals. My best one of these seniors are on none of these lists. So how am I getting them? And I found that most of them were by accident. I could get more of them if I target them correctly, but I'm like, okay, with well, what message? Like, you know, I wanted to like drill a little deeper so that when I really unleashed this, it was just like wide open. So another thing I was noticing was, is that when I buy these houses, a lot of times uh, a hedge fund or a newer investor would, would have a higher offer than me. And I remember one in particular. So I bought the house about six months previous. I called the homeowner and it was the son because the mom uh, went to an assisted living facility. And I said, hey, do you remember me? You know, you know, save your home buyers. He's like, oh yeah, I remember you. I said, hey, I didn't really like bring it up at the time because I didn't want to blow the deal up. But I think you had mentioned that you had another investor offer um, at the time that was more than mine, maybe like 10 grand. He's like, yeah, yeah, that's true. I'm like, hey, I'm really glad that you went with me, but I'm just curious like why. And he said, you know, 
when I went to the house, I was genuine. You know, I truly wanted to care. You know, I was caring about his family, you know, his situation. I wasn't just trying to get him to sign a contract and, you know, when are you going to hurry up and move? I was there for a long time, which was the bad part. It wasn't scalable. I was in these seniors' living rooms for like two to four hours. And, wow. and what I was noticing was, is that the more I learned about their struggles, and especially like with senior housing, the more I was able to help them. And so what ended up happening was, is uh, I was at a, a motivated seller's house. We were doing the paperwork. The lady was there and her, um, her daughter, adult daughter was there. And the daughter was like super happy. She's about 60 years old. And she's like, you know, thank you so much for helping us. You know, you know a lot about this. I actually helped the family find another place to live, a senior housing facility. And she said, you should write a book about this. And I was like, no. I was like, I'm a house buyer. I'm not a writer. No, thanks. And then I kind of went to the car. I went home and I thought about it. And I was like, you know, I've invested this time finding this really good niche that's working really, really well for me in this really competitive market, getting a lot of exclusive deals. And I've become almost like the, the senior housing expert in my area. Why don't I take that and go to the next level and be, you know, the person who wrote the book on senior housing? So what I did was I just wrote down all the questions these families were asking me, um, just listed them, you know, put the pros and cons of different strategies and solutions and um, self-published my first book, Home to Home, the step-by-step -step senior housing guide. And I just printed out a hundred copies of it. I started giving it out. It made a huge, huge difference in my business. Nice. Right on, man. So let's kind of conclude the podcast here. What, what last key piece of advice would you give to somebody who's, you know, they're listening to this podcast and they're watching YouTube videos and going on online forums and yeah. maybe they just don't know where to start, right? If they're having a tough time translating and transferring all their ideas, knowledge, and just the things that they know, and they're having a tough time converting into actual action steps, mm -hmm. what key pieces of advice would you give them? Well, one of the things I wish I had done sooner, if I had did this sooner, it would have made tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars of difference in my business is I wish I had picked a niche sooner to focus on because there's a lot less competition in the niches. And, you know, Dan Kennedy says, you know, the niche, you know, the riches are in the niches. And so I had kind of an idea of who I wanted to help and I just didn't clarify it for two years. So what I, what we've done is we have a book that we sell, but for your uh, listeners, I'm going to offer a copy of it for free. So we wrote the real estate investor book writing checklist. And so, you know, for DIY investors, people who are new and are just getting started and you're rolling your sleeves up, this book can walk you through who an ideal motivated seller might be for you, how to target them, what messaging to say, how to organize something, whether it's a brochure or a book or an ebook, or even just like your website or your Facebook business page. You know, I really do think that you can get some value out of this if you take action and read it. And I wish that there was something like this when I got started. Yeah. So I'll, you know, whenever we can give them the links or something of how to well, plug why, it. Why don't you, why don't you share right now? What's the website? Where can, where, where can people find it? Yeah. So they just go to um, deals with an S deals, chasing you.com forward slash quack K W A K. And uh, if they go, if they go to that, they can download a copy of the book uh, for free as long as it's up and um, they can use that to try to figure out, how to get more niche, how to speak to a, a smaller group of people. Because most people, when you're doing your first deal, you just need one deal. So how can you find somebody that you can truly serve at a higher level? 
how can you speak to them so you're standing out differently um, among all the noise and all the competition? And then, and then once you get going, how can you dial into it a little bit deeper? So that's something good for the new investor and for the experienced investor. We have some resources on that website where you can see you know, how we help people plug into different resources and just connect them to different resources. I love it, man. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Max. You know, and, and like I said, guys, for all of you guys listening, go check out his stuff. You know, he seems to, again, have a story, right, with how he started. And that's the key. So thank you so much, Max. Uh, uh, viewers, I'll see you guys in the next episode. Hey, everyone. Daniel Kwok here once again. I hope you enjoyed that episode of the First Deal Experience Podcast. If you're wanting to do your first ever deal or scale your existing portfolio, I recently wrote a book to show you how I went from zero to 75 rental units in just one year. Just head over to zero to 75 units.com for your copy. Again, that's zero to 75 units.com.